The Seven Years' War has been described as the First World War by Winston Churchill. The war will rain bloodshed upon the Americas, Asia, and Europe. We will see the superpowers of the 18th century locked in a battle to establish global preeminence at the careless expense of precious life. The American theater of the Seven Years' War is called the French and Indian War. It will quite literally be a battle for North America. And ironically, the fires of war will be set ablaze by a young, naive, and ambitious man, George Washington. If you have listened to this podcast for any length of time, you've probably noticed that much of North America was plagued with war. The French, the Spanish, the English, all vying for power over the continent. The Native Americans, unfortunately, were seen as nothing more than partners in trade and allies or enemies in war. To the French in the north and the English along the eastern seaboard, the two European powers had set their sights on the next conquest of colonization, the Ohio River Valley. There was no colony more interested in the Ohio country than that of Virginia. The Ohio Company of Virginia was founded in 1748 by two powerful colonial families, Thomas Lee and the brothers, Lawrence and Augustine Washington. They were financially backed by some of the most powerful men in the Virginia colony. The future royal governor, Robert Dinwiddie, George Mason, the Mercer family, many of the Lee family, and the Corbins. Not to mention that George Washington himself would have a trading interest and investment within the company. By 1748, the Washingtons had been in Virginia for three generations. George Washington's father, Augustine Washington Sr., would die in 1743. His 11-year-old son, George, would inherit a meager property at Augustine's death. George's older brother, Lawrence Washington, inherited Little Hunting Creek, a property that he would rename Mount Vernon. He named the property Mount Vernon in honor of Admiral Edward Vernon, with whom Lawrence had served in the Royal Navy during the War of Jake and Deer. Lawrence would become somewhat of a father figure for a young George Washington. Returning from the army in 1742, Lawrence would become militia commander of the Virginia Militia in 1743. That same year, he would marry the eldest daughter of Colonel William Fairfax, his neighbor, at the Belvoir Plantation. In 1744, Lawrence would be elected to Virginia's House of Burgesses, and in 1747, would join his father-in-law in creating the Ohio Company of Virginia. A young George Washington would spend as much time as he possibly could at his brother Lawrence's home in Mount Vernon. It is no secret that George Washington was ambitious and worked hard to improve his standing in colonial society. 
it certainly didn't hurt that he had buddied up with his brother's neighbors, the Fairfaxes. George frequently visited Belvoir, and it was there that William Fairfax took a liking to the young boy. It would also be William Fairfax who would hire Washington and George William Fairfax, the elder Fairfax son, to survey a portion of his vast land holdings in the Shenandoah Valley in 1748. It was on this trip that Washington would earn a stellar reputation as a land surveyor. George Washington was just 16 years old and kept an extensive journal of his first surveying trip with George William Fairfax. They had to deal with nonstop rain, endless trekking through the hostile terrain of the frontier, sleeping in less than desirable locations, hunting, drinking with the Indians, and learning some of the Native American cultures. It would be here that George Washington would fall in love with the frontier. In 1749, the British Crown granted the Ohio Company 500,000 acres in the Ohio River Valley, between the Kenowa River and the Monongahela. The grant was to be given in two parts. The first 200,000 acres were promised initially. The remaining 300,000 acres would be granted if the Ohio Company could successfully settle 100 families in the Ohio River Valley within seven years. The company was also required to construct a fort and provide protection for the settlement at their own expense. The land grant would also be given rent and tax-free for 10 years to help facilitate colonialization. Interestingly, a year after the Ohio Company was founded, Thomas Jefferson's father, Peter Jefferson, the Merriweather and Lewis families, and other prominent men in Virginia founded the Loyal Company of Virginia. Now, the Loyal Company of Virginia was not as successful as the Ohio Company. In fact, the king was pretty generous with his land grants, causing many intercolonial disputes between Pennsylvania, Maryland, Massachusetts, and the more aggressive Virginia. This would not be the last land dispute between the colonies and future states. We also need to remember that while King George was handing out grants, the French were also laying claim in the Ohio. But one thing I find really interesting as a side note about the Loyal Company of Virginia is Jefferson's father's biggest ambition was the planning of a substantial Western expedition in 1753. Another founding member, James Murray, described the proposed trip in a letter in 1756, and this is what he wrote. Some persons were to be sent in search of that river, Missouri, if that be the right name of it, in order to discover whether it had any communications with the Pacific Ocean. They were to follow the river if they found it, and exact reports of the country they passed through, the distances they traveled, what worth of navigation those rivers and lakes afford. The plan would not be carried out by Peter Jefferson, but it did foreshadow the Lewis and Clark expedition. Maybe Thomas Jefferson and Meriwether Lewis were fulfilling a family promise? Nonetheless, the Ohio Company was very busy from 1748 to 1750. They opened a series of trading posts along the Potomac River and began to blaze a small road over the Appalachian Mountains to the Monongahela River. In 1750, the Ohio Company hired a surveyor, explorer, and renowned frontiersman, Christopher Gist. 
Gist surveyed along the Ohio River from its headwaters near the Lenape or the Delaware village of Shinopinstown, modern-day Pittsburgh, all the way down to what is now Louisville, Kentucky. George Washington, at a young age, longed to join the Royal Navy and follow in the footsteps of his older brother, Lawrence. And he probably would have done just that if George's mother, Mary Ball Washington, did not put an end to it. As George was making his name as a land surveyor, his elder brother would fall ill. We do not know the exact time that Lawrence became very sick, but what we do know is that he was given permission by the royal governor to take an absence from the Virginia House of Burgesses to seek medical care. The young George would accompany his brother on a journey of healing. He would go with Lawrence to England to seek medical advice. He would then go with Lawrence to Barbados, where they believed the climate would aid in his brother's recovery. There, in Barbados, George would contract smallpox. He would barely survive the disease, but he would have lifelong immunity from it. George would then return to Virginia in the spring of 1752, but his brother would continue on to Bermuda, seeking a cure for his condition. Lawrence would find no cure and he would return to Virginia in June of 1752, where he would die in July from tuberculosis. Lawrence would leave Mount Vernon to his only child and young daughter, Sarah. Unfortunately though, Sarah would die just two years later. In the event of Sarah's death, Mount Vernon was to go to his wife, Anne Fairfax. However, Anne had married George Lee by the time Sarah had died and had no need for Mount Vernon. The property was then given to the young George Washington. A heartbroken George followed in his brother's footsteps and was appointed major adjunct of the colony's southern district. He was just 20 years old. By this time, George may have successfully completed well over a hundred land surveying missions, but it would be the next task that the now governor Robert Dinwiddie would give to George Washington that would prove to be completely out of the young man's depth. As I mentioned earlier, the French also laid claim to the Ohio River Valley. As the French and English began to build forts, the crown was alarmed by French aggression. Governor Dinwiddie had received approval from Parliament to send an envoy and demand French withdrawal from the Western lands claimed by Virginia. Washington immediately volunteered to be Dinwiddie's emissary to the French. Although he had no prior military service, spoke no French or any of the native languages, and had absolutely no experience in matters of diplomacy, he was no stranger to the hardships of the frontier that he would have to endure on this mission. Washington also was seeking to gain a commission in the British Army and felt that this was a mission that would have gained him that commission. On October 31st, 1753, Washington departed Williamsburg. He would enlist the assistance of a Dutch-French-speaking interpreter, a few woodsmen, and a well-known surveyor, Christopher Gist, who did have knowledge and some degree of the language of the native peoples and their customs. Gist was to serve as an assistant and advisor to Washington. By November, the small party would reach the trading village of Logstown on the Ohio River. There, Washington met with a council of shaman from the area. He reminded them of the alliance that they had made with the British 
and explain the purpose of his mission. Washington and his men were escorted by Seneca chief Tanacharison, two Iroquois chiefs, and a chief from the Delaware Nation, as they made their way to Fort Leboeuf. There, Washington and his party met with the French commander, Jacques Le Grandier, and delivered Dinwiddie's message to vacate their forts and leave English territory. Two days later, though, the French replied with a polite but firm refusal to leave. As winter set in, Washington and Gist were eager to leave and make their way back to Williamsburg. After a few dangerous run-ins with hostile native tribes and deep snow, Washington reached the Allegheny River. By then, though, the river was not fully frozen as they hoped it would be. In order to cross the river, Gist and Washington built a raft of logs using only one hatchet that they had between the two of them. Washington and Gist tried to maneuver through the ice-clogged waters, but the raft jammed against an ice pack before they were halfway across. Washington attempted to thrust the ice away, but the strong current pushed the ice blocks, leading him to fall into the icy waters. Luckily, Gist was able to help pull Washington back onto the raft. Numb and exhausted, they were unable to make it to shore on the raft. They decided to abandon the raft altogether and wade through the freezing water to a nearby island where they spent a miserable night in the cold and severe weather. Luckily, in the morning, the river had finally frozen solid and the two men were able to walk their way to the shore and to safety. Washington made it back to Williamsburg in mid-January, where he gave Dinwiddie the French refusal to leave. In response, Dinwiddie ordered the construction of a fort at the Forks of the Ohio, a place where the Monongahela and the Allegheny Rivers came together to form the Ohio River. Washington also received a promotion to lieutenant colonel and was instructed to raise a force of soldiers to garrison the new fort. These soldiers would form a new unit called the Virginia Regiment. Washington would command an advance force and the rest of the unit would follow behind his superior, Colonel Joshua Fry. Washington orders from Dinwiddie were to act on the defense, that in case any attempts are made to obstruct the work or interrupt our settlements by any persons whatsoever, you are to restrain all such offenders. And in case of resistance, to make prisoners of or kill and destroy them. As Washington began to put his plan into motion, he learned that the French had seized the half-built fort at the Forks of the Ohio. He was told this information by Tana Charison. Tana Charison was the leader of the Mingo Indians that lived in the Ohio country. He was a respected leader among the Iroquois, but he was born a Catawba in the Carolinas. It is said he hated the French, because according to him, they had boiled and eaten his father. The English would call him the half king and viewed him as the appointed Iroquois viceroy over the Ohio Indians. The half king desperately wanted the British to build a fort at the forks of the Ohio. It is even said that Tanacharison laid the first log of the fort. It was at Tana Charison's urgings that Washington and his men pressed into the Ohio country. 
The plan was for his elite force to set up a suitable place to wait for the rest of the Virginia regiment as reinforcements so they could retake the fork. By May 24th, Washington's men would reach a place called the Great Meadows, what is now Farmington, Pennsylvania. On the evening of May 27th, Tana Cherison had sent a messenger informing Washington that a party of French soldiers had camped nearby, just a few miles from the Great Meadow. Washington would take 40 men and set off to meet with the half-king. By morning the next day, on May 28th, Washington and Tana Cherison's warriors had reached the French camp in a glen. Washington and his native allies surrounded the French camp. What happened next would be completely out of Washington's control. Washington reported that one of the Frenchmen saw a Virginian above the camp and fired a shot from his musket. A French survivor claimed that it was the Virginians who opened fire without a warning or provocation. Either way, two volleys were fired into the French camp. A few French soldiers managed to return fire, as Washington later wrote. I heard the bullets whistle, and believe me, there was something charming in the sound. The skirmish was over in less than 15 minutes. The French would surrender. Washington reported that one of his men had been killed and that three were wounded. 14 of the French had been killed or wounded in the exchange. Among the wounded was the French ensign, Joseph Colon de Vier de Jumonville. The French claimed that Jumonville was acting as an ambassador with a diplomatic message for Washington, asking him to withdraw from the Ohio claimed by France. But Washington, who spoke no French, was unable to understand what they were saying. It was after this that Tana Cherison did something unforeseen and shocking. He stepped up to Germonville and said, Tu nous pas encore mon pierre, thou art not yet dead, my father, as he split Germonville's head with his tomahawk. At that signal, the native warriors began killing and scalping the enemy wounded. Washington was only able to save one soldier's life as he looked on in shock and horror of the savagery of Tana Cherison's native warriors. Upon hearing of the massacre, English writer and prominent member of parliament in England, Horace Walpole, summarized the entire incident as, a volley fired by a young Virginian in the backwoods of America has set the whole world on fire. And unfortunately, this would only be the beginning and not the end of a fire that will rage out of control for nearly nine years.